Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. It's a pleasure for us today to have as our guest, Dr. Carol Scott Connor. Dr. Scott Connor is Emeritus Professor of Surgery in Surgical Oncology and Endocrine Surgery at the University of Iowa. In addition to her MD and general surgery training from the New York University, she has a background in electrical engineering, a PhD in anatomy, and an MBA. You may recognize her name as author and editor of numerous medical textbooks and over 100 journal articles. She's also a creative writer, having published multiple books of short stories and a series on medical writing. For her many contributions, Dr. Scott Connor was named a local legend by the National Library of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Scott Connor. Thank you, Megana. First of all, we like to hear from you. Can you tell us a little bit more about where you're from, your training, and what led you uh, to your career, where it's at right now? Sure. Uh, I grew up in the Northeast. I was born in Tawanda, Pennsylvania, which is sort of in the middle of the coal mining area of Pennsylvania. And I grew up in Palmyra, New Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia. My father and mother both had to put their college careers on hold because they had to support their parents during the Great Depression. So they were both going to night school when I was in my formative years. And I think that that left me with a tremendous respect for education, for uh, continuing to learn, and for the concept of being a college professor. So as I grew up, uh, and I was an only child, as I grew up, my parents encouraged me to dream big. They didn't put any limits on what I might want to do. My father did say that being a physician was kind of a dirty business, and I would much rather I was a mathematician because that was a clean business. But I don't think that was a sexist comment. I think it was just that um, he thought draining pus and getting involved with blood was inherently messy. At one point, I thought I might want to be a nurse, but my mother said, don't be a nurse, be a doctor. Doctors tell nurses what to do. So I think that even back in the 60s when I was growing up, I was lucky to have parents who really let me aspire to be whatever I wanted to be. I went off to MIT and I majored in electrical engineering and I had an awful lot of difficulty. It was it was really tough coursework and I had trouble with my grades and it took me a couple tries to get into medical school. I do have to remind people at this point that it was still legal then to discriminate or set quotas on the number of women who were admitted. So it was probably harder to get in as a woman than it was as a man. It took me three tries running and I got into NYU. I thought I was going to be an internist, maybe a cardiologist. I thought that would be a good way to use my electrical engineering, you know, because the heart's got this electrical system that makes it beat. I was working part-time in a pacemaker clinic, so it all sort of fit. But, you know, I just fell in love with surgery. And I stayed at NYU for my surgical residency went into academic surgery because, as I say, my parents really gave me that 
concept that being a professor was the highest thing you could aspire to. And I've been in academics ever since. I retired from practice as a surgeon about three years ago, and I've kept an emeritus appointment, which is an unpaid faculty appointment that lets me use the library and have a computer and and a bunch of other things that make it easier to continue some kind of scholarly pursuit. So I'm in a very mellow phase of my career right now, and I'm very happy. We're starting to see a rise in the number of female chairs and female leaders, and you were one uh, the head of Iowa's uh, Department of Surgery, one of the first female uh, chairs. How was that experience? Well, I think you're right. There are a lot more women uh, chairs and women in leadership positions in colleges of medicine in general. It's, you know, and I think the best sign of that is to say I've, I've lost track of how many there are. Uh, we just recently had Rebecca Minter come down to the University of Iowa, and she's the new chair at the University of Wisconsin. When I was appointed head, which is what chairs were called at the U of I when I, I became uh, chair, I was the second in the history of American surgery. The first was a woman by the name of Olga Jonasson. And Dr. Jonasson was a transplant surgeon, so she was a pioneer in surgery as well as a pioneer in being a woman who was a leader. She was chair of surgery at The Ohio State University for, I think, about five or six years, and then moved on to a leadership role in the American College of Surgeons, which is our big national leadership uh, organization. Now we have women who are uh, in major leadership roles in the college. We have women who are in major leadership roles in the American Board of Surgery setting the policies which determine how surgeons are boarded or certified as surgeons, and we have a large number of women chairs. Moving forward, I was uh, looking into kind of what you've been up to in the past few years, and you have a a consulting position or a collaboration with NASA as far as deep space medicine. Can you tell us a little bit more about your work with NASA? Yeah, that's been the most fun. That started about 15 years ago, and uh, it it happened through the Institute of Medicine, which is sort of a think tank in Washington, D.C. It's now called the National Academy of Medicine, but it's the same thing. They form committees who advise various groups on issues, and NASA came to them about 20 years ago and asked their advice. And the question was, if if we are going to send human beings on a long-range mission beyond low Earth orbit, and in, in actuality what that means is if we're going to send people to Mars, if we're going to send people to Mars in, oh, say, 15, 20, 30 years, what research do we need to do now in order to make sure that we can do it as safely as possible? What are the big medical issues that they're going to face? What are the unsolved problems? So I was asked to participate in a group of about 20 through the Institute of Medicine who met periodically. We heard evidence from all kinds of sources, including uh, Antarctic expeditions, people who go down in nuclear submarines for long tours of duty, as well as NASA. And we 
produced a comprehensive report called Safe Passage, which is sort of like a little mini medical textbook about what are the problems you're going to run into and what are possible ways to solve them. We found that some of the problems are are difficult and even at this point don't have an easy answer. Let me give you one example. The, the biggest example is radiation. The radiation exposure during a mission to Mars, when you're outside of the protection of the Earth's magnetic field and before you get into the protection of, of Mars itself, is not only an order of magnitude higher than we would normally accept here on Earth, but the radiation itself is different. It's not just gamma rays and x-rays and small particles like we use here on Earth for uh, radiation therapy. It's uh, things like heavy iron nuclei stripped of their electrons going at very fast speed. And the damage that they will do to cells and the manner in which it will be repaired is still being elucidated. Even simulating this kind of radiation on Earth using the kinds of particle accelerators that we have can be very difficult. So so it remains a yet-to-be-solved problem. The easiest way to solve it is to take less time getting there, and that means quicker transportation, maybe different modalities of propulsion. But when you go to a different modality of propulsion, you introduce new dangers associated with that uh, mechanical system. So there's no free lunch, so to speak. Uh, that's just one of the examples. I did this for about 15 years over a series of committees. And at the end, I was chairing two committees that worked for NASA. And it's just been a fascinating window into another world, uh, literally, because I've met astronauts. I've met some of the uh, big names, people that are current astronauts, people that are, are going to fly perhaps someday in space. I've been down to see launches. I've seen how they train. And it was just a great privilege to be involved. So, Dr. Scott Connor, from your perspective, do you think we can overcome uh, these limitations in the next 20 years, or are they too great for humans to make it to Mars? What I think is that probably in the next 20 years, we're going to go ahead and go for it. I don't think we will have overcome all of the obstacles. And what I've said before, and I still believe it is, I think the first people that go will pay a high price, but I think we'll make that trade-off and we'll, we'll just do it. We're just it. explorers by nature. You know, it's just, it's just, you think about how people set out in early sailing ships and they didn't even know if they were going to fall off the end of the world. They thought the earth was flat and eventually they were going to just fall off the end. So... I think we're going to go for it at some point. I don't think all the problems will be solved. Wow. I think we're going to have to do a separate episode with you and some other guests just on uh, <laughs> the concept of uh, space medicine. And I think that's just a fascinating topic that we could talk a long time it about. It is. It's <laughs> a great topic. To get back to something that might be more relevant, I, I sometimes tell the story of how this all came about. I was just sitting in my office. And I got a call from a former professor, and he was looking for someone to serve on this committee. And 
I had not done any research with NASA. I had no special expertise. I had my engineering background and my general surgery background. And I named a list of people that I knew that were doing research. And he said, well, we can't use them because they're getting funding from NASA. So it's a conflict of interest. And, and so this is the point of the story. Something inside of me said, I should volunteer. So I just said, you know, well, if you can't find anyone else, I'd be happy to do it. And I didn't think I was qualified at all. I really didn't. I had no space background. My dad was a physicist, so I knew a little bit about rockets. But that that's pretty flimsy, you know, when you come right down to it. Well, he said, send me your CV. And the next thing I knew, I was on the committee. And uh, I just worked as hard as I could with each assignment. And it turned into a fascinating relationship. So I, I tell that story sometimes when I give talks to young people about career development. Because, you know, you just never know where something is going to lead. And there's nothing wrong with speaking up and saying, you know, I'd love to do it. And the worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to say, nope, you're not ready yet. But sometimes you get lucky. Definitely. I think that is great advice. Um, certainly this podcast has taken us in new directions that we've never imagined. And it's been a lot of fun. We'd like to dive into our dissection of the day to get to know you a little bit better in, in, in one of uh, your specialties. Not only are you have a Ph.D. and a NASA um, consultant, but you're also a very accomplished writer, um, especially with uh, medical writing. Um, and so we'd like to hear a little bit, how did you get into medical writing amongst everything else that you do? And um, and how has this evolved? Sure. Well, I wrote my first book, which was called Operative Anatomy. It's got a slightly different title now in its latest edition. But I wrote it because there really wasn't anything like it. And I had had to keep ring binders of notes and articles that describe different techniques and anatomy and so on in my OR locker when I was a resident. And I thought somebody should write this book. And then I thought, well, maybe I should write it. And so I just got into writing my first book because it was a book that I think needed to be out there. And I, I did most of the writing myself with a partner who was an anatomist. And what we did was we took we took each operation that were, was commonly being done by general surgeons at, at that point, certainly by residents, and we gave the technical steps of how to do it. And with that, we gave the anatomy. So it was kind of a blend of a surgical atlas and an anatomical atlas. And it took forever. It probably took close to 10 years. But I kind of got hooked. You know, there's something magical when you write a book and it comes out and, and you see it and people start to use it and you can refer people to it. And then I got another opportunity and another. And it's like anything else. If you do it enough, you get to be good at it. And then people offer you opportunities to do it more. So toward the end of my career in particular, it became a way that I felt that I could contribute to scholarship without running a uh, research lab, for example, because I was beyond that point. I was not really a, much of a researcher, and yet I, I needed to have some scholarly output. So 
that was how I did it. My next question for you, you kind of touched on this, but if you could uh, expand on the challenges and the difficulties, um, you know, you faced when you were compiling a surgical atlas that is uh, that covers such a broad um, range of topics of general surgery from all across the board. Um, what were some of the, uh, the challenges and difficulties? Well, one of the challenges was that most, you know, when you're a surgical resident, you get the opportunity to do a lot of operations that you don't necessarily do after you finish. So, for example, you might rotate on the vascular surgery service and do some vascular operations or at least scrub on them. And and yet you're probably not going to do them when you finish as a general surgeon. And I certainly wasn't doing them as a general surgeon. But I wanted to include them so that a resident who was going into the operating room to do a uh, vascular bypass, for example, would be able to look in the book and see how it was done and see the anatomy. And the difficulty there was that these are procedures that I hadn't done in five or 10 years. So I had to enlist other authors to, to write about them. And that's, a good thing because that's something you don't have to write, so it's less work for you. But if you have a vision for how the book is going to flow and how things are going to be described, then you have to communicate that vision to them so that they describe things the way that you want them described. I'll give you an example. Right now, I'm in the process of editing the different chapters that people have written for the fifth edition of Chasson's Operative Strategy in General Surgery. And all of, so these chapters, each one is an operation. And most of them are written by outside authors. So the format for the book calls for putting in the preoperative indications, the steps in the preparation of the patient, something we call the operative strategy, which is sort of like the view from 30,000 feet of how you do the operation and the different choices you might have to make in the OR, and then an actual technical description of how to do it. And, and sometimes people have trouble understanding what's the difference between the view from 30,000 feet and the step-by-step instructions in how to do it. The way I think of the step-by-step instructions in how to do it is it's kind of like what you get when you open a cookbook. You know, I even call it the cookbook style of writing about surgical operations. You know, sift a cup of flour, cream it with one stick of butter. Same thing, you know, incise along the line of pulp, elevate the write colon with your non-dominant hand, use the electric cautery, and so forth and so on. So in order for the book to do what it's supposed to do, all the chapters have to sort of conform. And that means, you know, sometimes with some chapters doing a lot of revising. Most, most authors are really good, but sometimes you get something where you just say, look, I can't visualize what they're trying to say. And if I can't visualize it, I don't think a resident can visualize it. Then you have to send it back and ask them to rewrite it. 
They say, well, what do you want? And you say, well, I want more. I want more detail. Just sit down and close your eyes and imagine you're telling someone step-by-step how to do it. That's, that's what I want. Did you become editor of Chassens that this all happened after you had written Operative Anatomy or were you already yes. editing some texts before you had written your first book? I hadn't edited any text. I wrote my first book that, and that literally was my first book. I then edited a couple of uh, special issues of journals, you know, where you bring together articles. I The second book, I think, was the Sages, uh, the first Sages handbook on laparoscopy, and that I edited. And then I got the opportunity to do Chasson's. And Dr. Chasson was actually one of my professors when I was a resident. He had written this text, and he had shared some of the manuscripts of the chapters with me as he was working on them as a way of telling me how he liked to do the operation. So I had seen the manuscripts, and uh, then the book came out, and I bought the first edition, and then he revised it, and I bought that. But when it came time to revise it again, he was retired, and he didn't want to do it. So, So they approached me. And at that time, I was still doing the full gamut of general surgery. And this book did not include special procedures like vascular surgery. So I felt I was able to take it on. And I did the the third and the fourth editions I edited. And now we're doing the fifth. From a technical perspective, um, as far as getting a book published, um, especially mm-hmm. your, your first book, um, can you... You know, I imagine that had to be challenging to tell a publisher, hey, people are going to want to read operative dictations. And, you know, it might not make sense to um, a a publishing company necessarily exactly what it is. Um, And then do they have, you know, medical specialists that are reviewing this before they publish or is it just the lay editors? Um, How does that work? So so you're working with a medical editor, usually and they're called acquisitions editors because they're the ones that acquire the manuscripts and decide whether or not they want to publish a book. You approach the editor before you write the book. You don't write the whole book. You have to you have to have a good concept of what the book's going to be. So you have to have a detailed table of contents and usually a sample chapter or two. And you approach the editor who's assigned to surgery at one of the major publishing houses. And that editor will look at it and look at your background and think, well, this is interesting, it might work. It would fit with the kinds of things we like to publish. Or they might say, no, I don't think this is something that we can make be successful at this point. If they think they might be interested, they ask you to fill out a proposal. And the proposal form as you go into greater detail about what the book's going to be about, the table of contents, the contributors, and so on, you have to list the books that are similar and uh, who the projected audience would be. And then they will send it out to three or four uh, surgical educators, people who are experienced in the field, and they'll say, what do you think? Do you think this is worth doing or not? And if they like it and they get that good feedback, then it leads to a contract and then you do the book. So were you successful with your first uh, publisher? I was. I, I was 
I was just very lucky. And I, you know, sometimes you're just lucky. And I was at the University of Mississippi and I had had this idea and I'd been working on it for a while. And I spoke to the then chairman who was Dr. James D. Hardy and he had done several textbooks. And I said, you know, I want to do this book. Here's the idea. What do you think about it? And it just happened. It was just before the annual meeting of the American College of Surgeons. And he went to the annual meeting and he gave my information to his editor at Lippincott. And he came back and I was actually in the OR doing a case. And he went to the front desk of the OR and he called me out of the OR and he handed me his editor's card and he said, this man wants to do your book. And um, that's how it worked. It was contact, personal contact. But it, it, you don't have to have contact with an editor. You can go on the website and find out who their editor for medicine, and then in particular, your own particular field, surgery or whatever it might be, otolaryngology, anesthesiology, pathology, and you can contact them. And they're always looking for people to do books because most physicians can make a lot more money seeing patients than they can doing books. So finding people to do books who can do books, that's part of the business of what they do. You've also written uh, short stories and other medical pieces of medical writing. Can you tell us a little about these? Are these fiction or nonfiction? And, and how did you get into this? Well, I started writing my short stories because people wanted me to write my memoirs. And I would get two different kinds of inquiries from surgeons. They would say, I need something to give my daughter to read, to tell her what it's like to be a woman in surgery. Why don't you write your memoirs? Or they would say, what can I give my daughter to read that tells what it's like to be a woman in surgery? And I had collected and read most of the books that other women had written. But most of them were writing about how hard it was to be a woman in surgery. And they were sort of making it sound like a very difficult thing. And it didn't sound like, to me, like something you would want to give your daughter to read. For example, there was one written by a neurosurgeon called Walking Out on the Boys. I, I think that was the title. And she talked about a lot of the prejudice she had encountered at Stanford. and. It's a good book and it's a very true book, I'm sure, but it's not something I would give a daughter to read if I were trying to encourage her to go into surgery. So I thought about writing my memoirs and right about that time, there were a lot of exposés of memoirs where people said, well, you know, so-and-so wrote his memoir of growing up and it wasn't like that, I remember. I thought, geez, you know, really don't have good records and all that. And there's stuff you can't write about. How do you write about patients and so on? So I thought, well, I'll just write short stories about what it's like. So that is really what I wrote. I wrote a series of short stories by which I hope to convey the feeling of what it was like to be a woman in surgery. So you, uh, Iowa has a great writing program and, uh, wanted to get your sense on like how many surgeons have you known who attend the writers festival or like contribute to the examine life journal or any other forums like that? 
Well, I haven't. I've run into a couple during the summer writing festival, which is uh, a series of short courses that are open to anyone who wants to sign up and take a course. But we're just getting ready to have the Examined Life Conference, which is a three-day writing conference here in Iowa City at the College of Medicine. And there are several surgeons who participate. There's a uh, transplant surgeon in Nebraska by the name of Bud Shaw, who wrote a memoir, who was there a couple years ago. And uh, there's an otolaryngologist who's coming this year who's going to participate with me on a panel on um, writing groups and how to make writing groups work in the medical center context and so on. So there definitely are, are surgeons who participate in this kind of thing. Can you give kind of your basic advice for people in this field and then also maybe some tips on if you have writer's block or you're just not really sure how to format your piece? Like, what's your advice for uh, for writers to overcome these challenges? Well, the you know, writer's block is is a problem for a lot of people. I've had problems with it. And it seems like it has to do with your inner critic. You know, you're afraid if you write it down. Uh, people are going to laugh at it or it's never going to be accepted or it's just not going to be good enough. The best advice that anyone can give you is is just sit down and write. Just write for yourself and eventually something will come that sort of sticks in your mind that you think might be worth sharing with other people. If you're going to write for a wider audience, that is, uh, send stuff to literary journals, whether they're medical lit literary journals or humanities literary journals, you have to be prepared for rejection. And you have to realize that just because one place doesn't take it, for example, the Examine Life Journal, doesn't mean you shouldn't send it somewhere else. Formatting is important. There are expectations. Just like when you write a technical paper, there are expectations that it's going to have a certain format, you know, the abstract, the introduction, the methods, the results, and so on. Well, there are expectations for how a literary piece will be formatted. It doesn't have, it doesn't have headings like that, but it has a certain structure that's imposed by the expectations of the reader. And, so for that reason, it's a little bit easier if you take a course or two in writing or try to read a few things and follow that format. It's always easier to stick to the format that people expect rather than to try to be James Joyce and write Ulysses for your first book. We'll now move on to uh, our next segment. We are uh, today's topic that we picked for you, Dr. Scott Conner, is uh, talking about lymphedema. So briefly, could you tell us about how do you co counsel these patients about the risk of developing lymphedema? And um, secondly, if you could kind of talk to us about how do you prevent this when uh, uh, performing uh, sentinel lymph node biopsy and axillary lymph node dissections? Sure. So I think the first thing I would want people to know is that we are we're doing fewer and fewer axillary dissections. We do a lot more sentinel lymph node biopsies and lesser procedures that have a lower incidence of lymphedema. And 
And so if I were talking to a group of women, for example, I would say if if right off the bat your surgeon says you need an axillary lymph node dissection, I would want to get a second opinion because there are a lot of things that we do now in terms of using chemotherapy first to shrink the nodal involvement that can minimize the amount of surgery that needs to be done. Lymphedema can occur even after a sentinel lymph node biopsy, although it's not as common as it is after uh, axillary dissection. So I would tell a woman that if she's going to have a sentinel node biopsy, it is certainly possible that she'll have lymphedema. If she has radiation to the axilla or an axillary dissection, that adds to the risk. And that may be necessary as part of her treatment. What can she do to minimize the risk? Well, there are things we can do in the operating room, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But the main thing is for the woman to be aware that it can happen. And if it happens, if she gets a sense of fullness in the arm, that's often one of the earliest signs. She should ask to see a a lymphedema therapist, someone who's actually trained to um, do massage and pressure garments and so forth and so on to to combat the formation of chronic edema. Now, what we can do in the operating room, the surgeons at the University of Iowa are doing something called axillary reverse mapping, which is where you inject the lymphatics that drain the arm with a blue dye. And then when you go in the axilla and look for the sentinel node, you try not to disturb any lymphatics that are blue because they're the ones that are draining the arm. It's a technique that was developed by Dr. Suzanne Klimberg at the University of Arkansas. And we think that that may help minimize the risk. And what do you do if your sentinel lymph node is blue? In other words, it's draining the arm and draining the breast. You may not have any choice. You may have to take that node. Some people are actually doing lymphovascular reanastomoses to try to reestablish the lymphatic network. So I think there's a lot of work going on in terms of minimizing the risk. I think that once lymphedema occurs, there are surgeons, usually plastic surgeons, and we have a group at the University of Iowa who do this who specialize in the treatment of lymphedema by transplanting lymph nodes and doing lymphatic reanastomoses. And I have to say I was pretty skeptical about this, but it does seem to improve the situation. So for some women, it can be a real option. Bottom line, try to avoid a situation where you need a full axillary dissection. Make sure it's really what you need to have done. Get a second opinion if necessary. And if symptoms of lymphedema develop, get a referral to a lymphedema clinic, even if you don't really see much in the way of swelling. So we're going to jump into our final segment, which is the final five. It's just a few questions so our uh, listeners can get to know you a little bit more personally. So our first question for you, is there someone who you can think of outside of medicine who's been influential in your career? Well, probably that would be my parents. Uh, and I, you know, I think our parents influence us throughout our lives, even when they, even when they pass away. But I would say probably as far as being a role model, 
when I did my PhD, my PhD thesis advisor was a woman, and it was the first woman that I had seen as an actual mentor because all my mentors had been male before that. Her name's Dr. Betty Siskin, and she's now retired at the University of Kentucky, and I still uh, correspond with her from time to time. As an author, uh, I imagine you are an avid reader. What uh, book are you currently reading right now? I'm reading a nonfiction book called Radiant Girls. The subtitle is The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. It's about these young women who worked in factories where they painted uh, luminous paint on the faces of watches. And the the paint contained radium and these tiny, tiny fine brushes and they would lick the brush to point it to a fine tip. And they died young and they died horribly. And so it's the story of how that was unraveled and how it was how it led to litigation and so on. It's interesting to me because it's a story that my father had told me when I was growing up. It was a story about the dangers of radiation and and so that's what I'm reading right now. When you were operating, did you listen to music in the OR and what kind of music was it? I didn't listen to music very much. I didn't have any objection to music, but if I had listened, it probably would have been uh, golden oldies, you know, something fairly mellow. If you were to compete in the Olympics, winter or summer, doesn't have to be anything that you've actually ever done in your life. Is there an event that you would have wanted to do? You know what I think? I think the coolest event is, I think it's called the biathlon. It's part of the Winter Olympics. and you cross-country ski, and then you have to shoot. And it's the combination of the endurance event of cross-country skiing as fast as you can, and then having to go into a totally different mode and target shoot that I just think is intriguing. There's no way I could do that. I mean, I cross-country ski, but I don't shoot. But I just think I just think it's a fascinating combination. It is. Those are uh, true athletes able to master both of those skills at the same time. Um, And so for our final question, I'm going to go back to an old final five question that we would ask our guests. If you could go back in time to the first day of your internship, what piece of advice would you give yourself? Oh, I would say um, eat less junk food. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I kind of had to live on anything I could scrounge. And um, there were days when I lived on chocolates and anything I could find at the nurses' stations. One of the hospitals, you know, people always left chocolates at the nurses' stations. And um, I felt like I was living on chocolates for a while. But I think I I would try to give myself the advice to take time to eat. And, you know, the funny thing is my husband kept telling me that. But I just didn't believe it. So that's what I would say. Take time to eat real food. That's a great advice. I'm going to use it. <laughs> Thank you so yeah, much yeah. for joining us today, Dr. Scott Connor. This was uh, a very, uh, very helpful, very informative um, podcast. So thank you for your time. Thank you. It was my pleasure. 
Until next time, dominate the day. 